Hello and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is October 7th, 2022. Who would have thought the first week of the new fiscal year would be so busy? Some of the breaking news came yesterday when new information on the battle over the withdrawal of the preterm birth drug McKenna from the market was disclosed. The FDA and Covis Pharma posted their briefing documents ahead of the October 17th to 19th hearing on the withdrawal. Covis argued that McKenna should remain on the market, but with a much narrower label for women at higher risk of preterm birth and proposed a new randomized control study that in that group to confirm the benefit. The company also said that there should not be concerns about conducting the trial with the product on the market, even though patients may not enroll for risk of getting placebo, adding that removing the product from the market would make would make trial recruitment tougher. On the other hand, the FDA argued that there is no basis to keep McKenna on the market for any subgroup. The agency said there is no evidence of benefit in any subgroup and a narrowed indication would require additional studies. FDA officials also argued that COVIS has not defined a subpopulation where McKenna shows consistent efficacy. In addition, the agency said leaving McKenna on the market would hinder efforts to gather high quality data on the product, saying a randomized placebo-controlled trial is infeasible in the U.S. if the product is still on the market. The FDA also said leaving the product on the market would be a disservice to women at risk for recurrent preterm birth in their babies and give a false representation of McKenna's effectiveness. So for my panel here, is there anything that sticks out in in these documents? The the FDA seemed to have some harsh words for COVID, although I don't think we didn't. We I'm pretty sure we expected that. I was I was struck by this argument that sort of it's easier to recruit for a study for a product that is available, and you know uh, <coughs> they they had a a survey uh, um, sort of uh, um, backing that idea up. It doesn't sort of seem to uh, um, comport with. Uh, uh, any of our uh, um, experience, I would uh, um, uh, I would say in terms of, sort of kind of how easy it is to uh, complete clinical trials for uh, products that are already available. Um, that uh, that was a novel uh, um, a novel argument, and uh, you know uh, more power to them for having some uh, data behind it. But uh, um, it uh, it struck me as a little implausible, and uh, you know I don't know if the uh, advisory committee is going to come down to debating uh, the methodology for that. Uh, um, for that survey they used, but uh, um, that uh, um, that was something I was not expecting from the documents. It's been such a uh, you know a long running uh, um, case, and we're uh, um, so familiar with the various uh, um, arguments over accelerated withdrawal in general. At this uh, um, at this point, that that was sort of kind of what uh, stood out to me as sort of a, as a new wrinkle. Yeah, I mean it's a little bit. Um, I sort of understand where Covis is coming from, right? If FDA pulls a drug from the market and basically says the risk-benefit balance is unfavorable why it does seem challenging right to get people to enroll in a trial because it's not that we're saying we still need to find it out this may be you know, it's not the situation we sort of think of with drugs. Right, where, right. It's not an right? unknown. It's a, yeah, it's not a novel. Yeah, it's not a novel drug. Right. They've so. already <laughs> said it's it's been studied. This isn't we've studied it enough. We've decided, you know, you know, but on the other hand, it's just a little bit unfathomable to me to think that they could let it given that opinion <laughs> of FDAs that they could let them stay on in order to conduct another study. Because again, they're just letting the company keep making money 
while they're doing this study, and I, I sort of don't buy Covis's argument that it would be particularly easy to do the study with the product still on the market, right? <laughs> because again, as Matt said, we know that there's this sort of um, catch-22, I think, that happens with accelerated approvals, which is you get the products on the market, you need to do the confirmation, but just the drug getting any kind of approval makes it hard to do those confirmatory studies. Now, I guess, again, like there's like some, there's lots of like funny things going on here to me in terms of COVID, I mean, COVIS, not COVID, (laughs) (laughs) Um, different topic, you know, essentially saying, well, but you know, now that FDA has sort of raised questions about the, the drug in a different way, than typical, you know, and brought, uh, you know, these problems to people's attention, maybe people would think about enrolling in the confirmatory study a bit differently. Um, But I think, again, this points to something FDA really is trying to grapple with more broadly with accelerated approval products, which is like, how do we, how do they keep doing accelerated approval, which I don't think they want to move away from, and nor does the drug industry and probably not a lot of patients, but also make sure it, you know, fulfills that second half of it, which is you, you we need to get the studies that answer those more clinically um, relevant questions. And we need to make sure that granting accelerated approval doesn't prevent that from ever happening. Because again, otherwise you end up with these situations where you're essentially letting companies make money for years off of drugs that may, not be beneficial, that may be harmful and not beneficial and so forth. And, you know, beyond the that sort of initial harm to those patients, I think there's probably also harder to sort of quantify consequences for just then what else gets developed, right? If people think that the um, preterm birth drug market is, you know, being served, they might not develop something new. So... Yeah, it, it's it's it seems like FDA is pretty settled on um, what they want to do here, and Covis is just trying to kind of figure out what they can throw at the wall in terms of creative ways to keep somehow keep this um, alive. Well, and I guess I still question, you know, I mean, like I, I get it, you know, the novel argument that you know you could, you know, if it's not in the market, then really no one's going to want to, you know, try, you know, go into a trial, but. If and I'm not going to pretend to understand this I, this fully, but I mean, if if you're at real risk of preterm birth, are you going to go into a trial where you could get nothing, and you know, and not have that you know issue potentially addressed? I mean, even if you don't know if it if McCain works or not, are you going to risk not getting anything? I mean, we saw that with we saw that with the COVID vaccines, where you know after they the first EUA came out. All of a sudden, trial dropouts like skyrocketed because why should I risk not getting anything when I could just go down the street to the pharmacy and get a shot that I know works? So, you know, it. Well, yeah, you have, yeah you but that, that's you're saying you know it works, right? And then well, here we again, have if situation. you want, yeah, if you want to get the drug and you believe you need to get it, why would you sign up for a trial where you couldn't, you might, you have a 50% chance or whatever the the enrollment um, criteria is of not getting it. Yeah, um, I, I guess, I, I again, it's, I suppose it depends like how sort of edu- educational your or how your doctor educates you about the current situation and what is in the informed consent and how you would 
pay attention to that, right? Because obviously Mm -hmm. FDA here is making the case that not only may this, do they not think it's an, I mean, FDA does not think it's an effective drug, but not only that, they are raising real safety concerns, right? So um, I think that in theory should weigh differently in people's minds than a drug where you're saying, where FDA is saying, we don't think it works, but this is, you know, if it was a a ray, ray, you know, I mean, we know no drug is perfectly safe, but if it was had a really clean safety profile, I think that would make a a big difference. And maybe right, I, the situation you're you're talking about, Derek, would shift a bit. But um, you know, the the safety questions in my mind would would weigh on people who are thinking about that here. Yeah, I guess it looks like we're going to come down to maybe a question of whether it's worth keeping it on the market because we think it might work in some patients, which is an argument we've heard before for a lot of products. It'll be interesting to see if that kind of sways sways the committee and maybe even the FDA going forward. Yeah, the original uh, advisory committee vote uh, before um, FDA made their decision to uh, withdraw and then, uh, um, you know, the, the, the uh, COVID initiated the hearing request and uh, um, all that was actually pretty close. And so I don't know if there's going to be sort of a, a rally to the flag effect that sort of people will uh, be more supportive of FDA this uh, um, this time around or, uh, um, you know, uh, the um, or if the committee vote will be pretty tight. And uh, if it's a if it's a tight vote, uh, um, you know, that gives sort of FDA less uh, uh, less cover in terms of uh, the decision. It's uh, um, seems uh, committed to be making uh, um, these based on the briefing uh, documents. I was going to say, which maybe leads us into our next story of we don't know who 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 has to make the <laughs> final call, and if it's going to be close, who wants that job? Right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> who exactly. Wants to be the one who wants to be the one that has to make a contra an an unc uh, I don't know what the right word is, but if it's not seen as an obvious answer, you know, I think it's easy to kind of it's a little bit easier to be the person who pulls it if you know there was clear consensus from the advisory panel and so forth um, that it should be pulled. But if it's not, I mean, who wants their name attached to that? <laughs> well, and yeah, and 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 as as our colleague Sue Sutter, who's been all over this, reported this week, it's it, it the FDA kind of finds itself in kind of this weird, awkward situation just because of turnover where it's not really obvious necessarily who could be empowered to make this call. I mean, Commissioner Robert Califf has the authority in the law to make the decision, but he took over in kind of the middle of this. So, you know, like maybe he does, maybe he's going to feel like he's not, you know, entirely informed. There's other, there's been other high level staff departures. Like there's been, uh, there's been a lot of turnover in the office of the chief scientist, which was be another, you know, potential person who can make the call. And they have, they have a new, a new chief scientist is in, but she's only been on the job for maybe a month or a little six weeks, something like that. So, you know, you could argue, you know, she's not really up to speed and can't really get up to speed quick enough to make that decision. Principal Deputy Commissioner Janet Woodcock re- recused herself from the proceeding because she was involved in this when she was director of CEDAR. So, yeah, so we have like all these, you know, you know, the all these kind of, you know, questions of who's going to make the call. And then on top of all that, uh, Califf has said in the past that he doesn't like political appointees making decisions that are like science based and so forth because he doesn't want 
other political appointees to be tempted to be to kind of wade into those decisions. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm actually not sure who realistically could do it other than him at this point, though. It's interesting to me because, you know, as, as Hamburg, um, as Sue talked about, made the decision on Avastin and I guess. Um, I don't know, like, is there obviously these are have been the only two um, products that have kind of gone through this process, though, so far. But if you assume that more products are going to eventually <laughs> go through this process, do you need to have like a more clear, consistent policy of who who does it mm -hmm. again? I guess you might have to have some exceptions for if there does need to be legitimate recusals. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I can see it being a little bit problematic if there's just not a consistent, if like every, you know, FDA gets to, you know, rethink who who's designated the, the decider. <laughs> and these questions, right, I feel like you, you should have some general, like, transparent expectation of the person in X role is job to do it. Although, I, I mean, I sort of appreciate Califf's, you know, thought process in Avastin, sorry, not in, in the in the Sareptis, just thing of not wanting to um, be seen as, make it seem as like a political, you know, sort of decision. Although, you know, on the other hand, I think there are people that make the point that, you know, FDA sort of needs to get over that a little bit, that there there is, you know, sort of some amount of there's politics and judgment and things involved in that. And, you know, certainly no one would argue that Califf is not, you know, sometimes at, at the head of big government agencies, you sort of have somebody that's more of a manager that's not necessarily have, doesn't have some of the expertise you expect of people who might make a decision like we're expecting in McKenna. I mean, Califf certainly, I think, is qualified on the scientific front to make the decision, right? It's not like, yeah, yeah. you know, a governor who was put in charge of HHS who you wouldn't necessarily want making that call. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I referred to the decision as Caliph's Faramir moment and a shout out to all my uh, fellow uh, Lord of the Rings uh, nerds. But it's, it's, it's funny that he didn't want that you know, responsibility. I don't know if that was a dodge because it's sort of kind of the to uh, avoid the internal politics of uh, FDA that was sort of kind of were uh, were, uh, were were burbling up because of that. Uh, um, whereas it doesn't seem like there's as much of a uh, internal conflict here that he wants to sort of kind of uh, avoid taking a side uh, um, a side on. So it could be um, you know sort of easier from a uh, strategic decision to sort of kind of to actually be the decider. Uh, um, uh, here he wouldn't be running afoul through kind of uh, of uh, um, anyone internally as far as far as we've seen in terms of the briefing uh, um, materials and uh, um, and so forth. So uh, um, uh, and it is you know it's a different process and so maybe he can uh, um, um, rationalize his dangerous temptation uh, um, comments and sort of do something else uh, um, this time. But uh, you're right, Sarah. This we're kind of if if it's not uh, um, if it's not a clear process then. Uh, then it's not a, a reliable process, and that and processes should be uh, reliable, and uh, you know, government, uh, uh, you know, of course, should be reliable, and uh, but also, as you say, it's impossible to uh, separate politics from uh, um, uh, government governing. So, uh, um, how you uh, um, how you make that uh, um, distinction is a, is, a, is a difficult one. Yeah, and if you you know, I mean, again, I mean, some of this kind of seems to just be 
you know, unlucky for the FDA because of the, the changeover in the chief scientist's office. I mean, if you want if you want that person to make these decisions on a routine basis, which makes a lot of sense, you know, you were, the FDA is just unlucky because they had they had a chief scientist that was in place for a long time and who left to become the deputy surgeon general. And then you had attempt, you know, you found another one, but, you know, that person just started six weeks ago. So, you know, that that could happen again the next time there's a this uh, type of withdrawal comes up. But you could also have a commissioner that comes in and for like three weeks and be stuck making this decision, too. So, you know, it, <clears throat> some of it is just a, I mean, it might just be unlucky timing. But um, but yeah, I think this might be the way that they kind of set the, you know, at least hopefully this is kind of the way they set the they set the pathway for how these things will happen so they have a precedent and then you know going forward if there's a lot more of these you know withdrawals that they have to do you know then it's clear who's on the you know who's where the buck kind of stops so to speak next we're going to look at an issue that for many people is another sign we're finally coming out of the pandemic is in-person meetings the fda held what was termed a hybrid biosimilar workshop late last month the FDA speakers and other panel members were present together in the conference room at its White Oak headquarters while the audience was virtual. Those who have watched a lot of advisory committee meetings like us you know, over the last two years will note that this is a big change. Usually everyone is separate as part of a Zoom or some other virtual platform. The FDA also told us that it will now support in-person as well as virtual meetings at White Oak and the decision is up to the meeting organizer. So it seems that after years of strictly virtual meetings, we may soon have to go back to White Oak for a workshop or an adcom or some other meeting. So are you all excited about this prospect? Do you want to drive back to White Oak again? Well, I don't drive to White Oak. I take the Metro and then that fun ride on bus. And <laughs> <laughs> that seems so much even more. Even worse to me. <laughs> um, and, th and then now I'm thinking about the, the lines for the bathroom and the lines for to get coffee. Um, the line to get in security, get through security. Yes, and how <laughs> FDA always makes me um, pull up. For some reason, FDA security always makes me pull up my pants legs. They're Actually, I, f I found FDA security to be much more irritating than, like, going to Congress, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> which, which seems kind of a little bit ridiculous. But, um, I mean, all sort of kidding aside, I think sometimes there's value to, you know, going to where <laughs> the action is happening in person, though, I, you know, I personally do wish FDA was sort of located in a more convenient spot. Um, on the other hand, I think it does sort of vary quite a bit, which, how much benefit, I guess, you get from what types of in-person meetings, you know? So, I, I mean, I think your piece, and I think like Pertusiak, Kebazoni sort of didn't seem over eager to go back to all in-person, and I, I feel like that's probably the way of the world, and there'll have to be thought process put into when it should or shouldn't be. I mean, one thing, perhaps this is a little bit cynical of me, <laughs> but sometimes I do wonder with like advisory committee members, I mean, I guess, you know, back in the olden days, you know, they could be sitting in the room and looking at their computer and doing something else. But there's definitely been a few times where I've sort of wondered like how much certain members were paying, actually paying attention to the meeting <laughs> when they're all virtual um, the whole time. Um, just because like sometimes you'd have people that like basically like didn't speak at all um the whole meeting or 
you know, like you just, you know, have questions, but um, so I don't know. I think FDA is going to have to think really carefully about like which meetings really need to happen in person. Um, and if it's it's a benefit risk trade off not to be too, you know, <laughs> punny, you know, it's can they right? I mean, especially when you think about a country like the US where we, you know, it's not insignificant for people from California or, you know, Seattle or whatnot to travel to Washington, D.C. And is it, you know, can they get better people or the people they really want an advisory panel if they're allowed to join remotely from those places, right? And um, think of the money they save not flying and flying all those people in and paying for, you know, hotel rooms and meals and, you know, all kinds of other, you know, things. Yeah. And I, I mean, I even think with the pandemic, you know, um, and there's actually things, um, you know, the federal government is supposed to, you know, take into account certain environmental and impacts of all their work. But right. I mean, I think there's there. I mean, it was it's kind of always amazed me, like how much um, benefit there was to the environment from, you know, fewer people going out and about during the pandemic. And I, I think like it would be easy to just dismiss that. But I mean, the sort of like this class of worker that travels a lot and flies a lot from their work is really responsible for a lot of the negative admissions of climate change. And I think like as much as that might not seem like something the FDA should consider, I think it is like is important maybe perhaps to think about, right? Because again, you should, re I feel like you should really be prioritizing the things you really need to do in person and you really get value out of if you're gonna also have those sort of negative impacts as well. So, I mean, I don't know. I think we're, we're going to be going back to White Oak, you know, sometimes in the future, but I don't think quite as much. Yeah, one one uh, uh, meeting we won't be going to White Oak for is the McKenna meeting. They decided uh, uh, months ago, maybe in the, even in the, uh, January or so, that it would be uh, um, uh, virtual, uh, you know, uh, COVID had been pressing for a uh, um, an in-person meeting and uh, uh, did a great series of uh, uh, stories sort of uh, um, uh, earlier this year looking at sort of kind of the um, the emotional dynamics of the Avastin withdrawal hearing and sort of kind of how you know the the, the in-person crowd at that event sort of kind of had a real impact on the uh, advisory committee so it uh, um, it can have a uh, um, a big impact I am uh, surprised at sort of kind of how I have uh, appreciated the energy of uh, crowds at the few events that I've uh, um, been to sort of in our post-pandemic uh, uh, footing and uh, um, you know I'm all for uh, um, you know sort of getting people together and I think uh, um, you know ideas are just uh, better generated and better uh, hashed out that way. Uh, um, you know your excellent point about uh, um, environmental impact now is notwithstanding Sarah, but if we want the um, you know sort of kind of the uh, the best discussion and uh, the uh, you know true true openness from uh, government functions, it should be uh, in person with a uh, with a hybrid option to, uh, to for anyone that uh, that wants to uh, uh, to view it uh, online. Yeah, I think that's where it's going. I, I don't think anyone's going to be able to get rid of the hybrid options. You know, I mean, at least for most meetings, you know, public meetings now. Um, you know, just because of they've seen how how much access has increased with the ability to you know to have the video conferencing option and. And, you know, we've heard we've heard a lot of FDA people say that the fact that they can just flip on their computer in in the middle of the day and 
and zoom into a meeting rather than get on the train, go downtown, you know, go through the, you know, do your hour session, get on the train, go back to the office and you've lost half of your day, um, you know, is appealing to, you know, to a lot of people, you know, I mean, Janet Woodcock used to famously say when she was senior director, there would be days where she would have like eight or nine meetings in a row the entire day. I mean, you can't do that if you're if you have to get on a train and go to Capitol Hill or go to, you know, to a hotel and speak. So, you know, I could see a lot of I still think a lot of that is still going to occur where, you know, they just there'll be a lot of times where people just do not will zoom into conferences as opposed to, you know, going in person. But, you know, I I, I think that there'll be I, I, I hope there will be instances where they feel like me being there and standing at the lectern giving a talk and you know shaking hands with people afterwards you know is is important and is worth doing but you know we'll see the other thing i have i think like to think about with fda and um is you know patient participation particularly patients that have a variety of obstacles potentially to traveling to FDA and White Oak um, in terms of health, physical, you know, well-being mm -hmm. and obviously financial is I feel like they will have to think about, you know, not just sort of hybrid inter meetings in terms of people being able to watch, but like, do they need to keep the sort of open public hearing parts of meetings sort of hybrid, you know, to make it sort of, is that a fair way to get sort of a variety of patient perspectives, you know, potentially um, and get people involved? Does it even also um, I mean, can you do deal that with some of the issues where sponsors pay the, for, you know, yeah, a lot yeah. of people to come testify? So I think that's another interesting dynamic when you think about, you know, dealing with, you know, people and various health conditions and so forth in terms of representation, because obviously, you know, the travel, again, is something that is easier and affordable for a certain class of people and you want to make sure you know the the breadth of the experiences and the people impacted are you know being taken into account as much as possible and can you do that in a logistically feasible way you know like i don't think any you know two and a half hour public comment periods at every single you know advisory committee meeting may be possible in a lot of you know you know every you know so um, you know, can, can they, you know, can they kind of temper the, you know, allow kind of the, the in-person interest as well as the, the virtual interest and still keep the meetings going, you know, in a, in a, um, you know, smoothly and so forth too, will be difficult. Finally, we're going to take a look at the new user fee rates, which were announced this week. The new, the fees for new drug, generic drug, and biosimilar applications were more than two months late because of the delay in renewing the fee programs by Congress. Once again, the PDUFA application fees increased along with the ANDA fee, but for the sixth straight year, biosimilar application fees were unchanged. We also saw some fees decrease significantly. Since October 1st, when the fee programs officially launched, the FDA also has been posting guidances and other information to inform sponsors and stakeholders of its approach to the new user fee programs. But the fee announcement was the key for many sponsors because filing an application becomes a lot harder if you don't know how much it will cost. So for you all, do you, it seems like that, you know, we're kind of through the delays that were spurred by, you know, the, you know, the lack of inaction, lack of action on the user fee bill. 
So do you think do you think the agency can kind of move on kind of sort of unencumbered from here? Well, I think there's still a little bit of a uh, um, overhang uh, um, uh, uncertainty sort of uh, because uh, Congress has uh, made noises, you know, one might even say pledge to uh, revisit some of the um, the policy reforms that were not included in the uh, the clean bill that passed uh, later this year. You know, sort of we've been tracking, uh, um, you know, diversity and inclusion in clinical trials, uh, you know, reforms to the uh, accelerated approval uh, process and a uh, number of other things. And, you know, those are, you know, the kinds of things that would usually sort of be uh, well on the agency's radar when it was for kind of starting up a new uh, user fee program because it's for kind of how the uh, legislative renewals have tended to work. And now it's for kind of their almost for kind of stumbling into their uh, um, into their five year cycles where they they got uh, you know, some of the programs were announced, but the the fees weren't announced, and there could be still more for more you know reforms to come. And uh, you know, obviously, the agency is doing uh, um, you know uh, um, a great work with sort of kind of with the the certainty it has. But it's uh, um, I think it's difficult for the um, uh, the FDA to sort of kind of fully embrace uh, what's going to be going on for the next five years if they're not uh, um, sure what it, what uh, still might be coming from Congress. And obviously the people at FDA who sort of um, liaise with Congress most closely on policy, you know, and give technical advice and so forth are probably um, a little bit busier now still than they might expect to normally be um, going off a user fee cycle. And so it will be interesting to sort of track that because, you know, Congress kind of can keep you keep you hanging for a long time. <laughs> um, and well, in this case, probably if it's not done by December. That, that stuff's probably not happening. So uh, we have a, a, a limited window there. But uh, but yeah, you're right, sir. Right. But it's always like sort of like sometimes it seems like and it even felt this way covering the user fees. It's like people get like in this like sense of like, Oh, but it, it might be out today. Maybe, and you sort of like you have to kind of remind yourself, like maybe, but usually they, they kind of like wait until exactly the last minute. But you also understand that for people really working on this and covering it, kind of do sometimes have to um, sort of act like it might actually be coming sooner than it is. But I, I sort that was my point. Is like, yeah, yeah, I do think you know by the end of the year we'll sort of know if we get any of these FDA reforms or otherwise. It's probably going to be quite a while. But um, you know, it, it does tend to be one of those things like the way Congress works. We probably I, I would be surprised if we know much sooner than the end of the year. The only um, thing that usually sometimes helps with Congress is getting them to move fast is that what is when they want to leave town or be on vacation, <laughs> right? Like that seems to be the biggest motivating factor for them <laughs> is like it takes them up until a, a some kind of very hard deadline. Yeah, I mean, the, the good news with all this was that they were able to do a lot of the because they had the commitment letters in hand for a long time, they were able to get all that planning and kind of implementation work done before October 1st. It was just a matter of can we it just ended up kind of being, you know, kind of a huge kind of onslaught of guidances and, and so forth that came out right at the last, you know, right at October 1st or like, you know, within those few days because they couldn't release them you know, kind of in the run up once the bill was enacted and we knew we were just kind of waiting for the date itself to happen, which is 
kind of like what happened with the um, the, you know, the the actual fee notices themselves. I mean, they were normally these are announced like in July, in late July, early August, and and they were all they all came out in one day, you know, this week. And um, interestingly, they had to withdraw one because of a technical glitch. That was what they called it. Um, it it was a it looked like a, a table that you know that they didn't make the cell wide enough in in Excel, and so all the numbers came out as hash marks instead of because it, you know because it couldn't fit all the numbers in it, and so they had to reissue it. But you know again, this is one of those things that you know maybe if they were you know if they had some more time and they weren't kind of you know had trying to get these out as soon as possible, maybe that you know that gets caught and they don't have to worry about. You know, because they they don't have to you know kind of create that you know ask those people don't have to ask those questions about it to, you know which you know it causes uncertainty because you know everyone wants to know why did you why is the note is the notice withdrawn did you have to change the fees did you you know like they did last year with Padufa so is it is an interesting time I'm sure there I'm sure a lot of people at FDA are happy that this is you know they can get this stuff done now well that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.